Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One of the most powerful forces reshaping our world is unprecedented mass migration. The wind of change that carried my own parents across the globe in the 20th century was a mere gust compared to the hurricane that is coming. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, that was former British Home Secretary Suella Braverman talking about migration to the UK. She, I mean, she is, you know, up to the right on Genghis Khan in terms of some of her political views. But is she right on migration getting out of control? It's not the boats that are the issue. It's not people illegally crossing the English Channel. Uh, the vast majority of migrants to Britain, like 99%, are arriving by legitimate means and staying here with valid visas. So if she wants to stem the hurricane, why didn't she do something about it? Well, perhaps there isn't an answer. So the question for the West, are there too many people? And for the world, the same question. Can we keep supporting this level of population? That's this week on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, last year, net migration to the UK reached 745,000 people. For the 12 months to June, it's down to a little bit, to 672,000. That's 1.2 million people coming into the country, 508,000 people leaving. And most of the 1.2 million coming in come from countries outside the EU. Most are students and healthcare workers. This, is, of course, is very distinct from asylum seekers, uh, which were close to 100,000 applications made in 2022, so a small fraction. Uh, of the total that is coming into the country. Uh, immigration has always been a contentious issue, of course, not just in Britain, but it's all over. Uh, it'll probably help bring Donald Trump back to power next year. It helped Geert Wilders to gain more votes than anyone else in the latest Dutch election. He got 23% of the total vote. His Freedom Party is seeking freedom from the European Union, even though, or perhaps because he is the son of a former European commissioner, uh, he does want to stay in the single market, though, like Norway. He just wants to escape the bureaucracy of Brussels. And also in the past, I mean, he's really won by advocating less migration and advocating the ban of the Koran and mosques in Holland, along with uh, immigration from Muslim countries. He basically wants to stop. He is Donald Trump's soulmate, isn't he? So, Steve... It feels like we are at a breaking point. I mean, the the political dial is shifting to the right, isn't it? If we had a, a Labour government in the UK right now, if we have that figure of three quarters of a million net migration in a year, then that would be a vote winner for the Tories, wasn't it? The fact that it was delivered on their watch is, is what's stopping that shift to the right here. Uh, it'll swing back to the centre for a while, but, you know, it'll be back there because this is going to be a, uh, around for a while. But fixing the issue seems too difficult for anyone, and it's an excuse for political right-wing parties to gain power, isn't it? Yeah, and in, I mean, there's, when you think about that, uh, that rate of immigration, that's that's more than one percent of the population, isn't yeah. it? 
Yeah, 1.1% okay. it works out. Yeah. Okay. Now that's that's huge. I mean, that's that's pretty much the normal rate of growth of the of the domestic population during you know, births minus deaths. So you no way more, way more. It's about in the UK that's about 0.1%. Well, that's what I'm saying. If we go back to yes. the 50s, the population rate of growth was about you know, of the order of one, one and a half percent out of natural uh, growth. And now yeah, you're that's talking about going to get way down. Uh, but that, that scale of immigration uh, it has got all sorts of effects, which you can be left or right about it and still say it's going to be deleterious for what the country needs at the time, uh, unless you're filling in an enormous labor gap. So the one time that was done, uh, in my own home country, Australia, uh, was during the uh, attempt to rebuild, uh, to, to improve the country's infrastructure during the uh, end of the Second World War. And masses and masses of migrants from Europe were accepted in, and on the condition that they worked in uh, labour camps, as they effectively were, in building the Snowy Mountain scheme. Mm. And so that that was something where the that produced a local camaraderie amongst the workers themselves with the local Australians as well. And then when they were when when their time had finished and they could go back into the population again, uh, there was a it was a cultural transformation for the country, which was quite successful. Um, but there was a sense it, of purpose but, there, wasn't there? I mean, everyone was being brought together. It was sort of like there's a bit of a pioneering spirit. So I mean, you could see that that could that could work. But I mean, uh, you know, migration. You make that point. One point one percent of the UK uh, population basically uh, is is how big it is now. Australian net migration peaked at three hundred thousand in two thousand and nine. It's still up at one hundred and seventy thousand last year, which is about. 0.7% of the population. The US had about 1 million net migration last year. That's about 0.3% of the population. So Britain is a bit of a standout, isn't it? In, in France, by the way, it's less than 0.1% of the population. Uh, and yet you'd think, you know, there's every reason to migrate to France. You know, they've got the Côte d'Azur, they've got Paris. Why would they want to come to Britain when you've got, Paris, when you've got France? <laughs> But, you know, ten, we've got 10 times the, you know, proportional to the population, 10 times what France is getting. It's bizarre, isn't it, to understand why this is happening? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd like to see what the details of the reasons for the migration are. I mean, if, if they're a lot, a lot of it is probably because the wages being offered to low paid workers in the UK, and that includes nurses and doctors these days, which is ridiculous, but that's, that's the case. That's so low that they've, they've got a need to fill in positions in the NHS and other bodies of that nature. Uh, and the students are coming over for you know, what is seen as education when it's in fact a, a, a visa exploitation scheme. I saw enough of that when I was in Australia to be quite adamant about that. Uh, so it's actually neglect of building your domestic infrastructure that means that so many people are being brought in. Probably, you know, I'd like to know what the breakdown in terms of students coming over or, or medical staff. Uh, it, I mean, that even, is basically it, students yeah. and medical staff. By and large, that's what people yeah. are moving, moving so that, in for. So what's, what's what, the student loophole then? Tell me about that. Well, the student loophole is basically they pay a large amount of money for, for fees uh, to the universities and the university which are being starved of funds. And I certainly saw that both in Australia and the UK when I worked there. Uh, they're starved of funds and the easiest way to fill the uh, put bums on seats and, and, and pay for the, you know, the vice chancellor's extremely high and obviously highly necessary, outrageous salary, uh, was to hire as many foreign students as possible. 
And then, of course, they have the benefit that they push up uh, rents in for slum landlords. And again, I'm talking from what I've seen. Uh, and low, low wage workers for uh, for retail outlets, 7-Elevens, and so on. So, um, yeah, there's, there's an enormous extent to which this is exploitation uh, on, on the one side of the of the migrants coming in. Uh, and on the other side, it's a reflection of the lack of attention to building the country's infrastructure and paying. Can I use the word shit on our podcast? You've just done it. So, you know, I don't yeah, okay. shit. to edit it. Yeah. There you go. Shit, shit wages for people in essential services like uh, like doctors and nurses. So, uh, yeah. you know, the UK is reaping the rewards of underinvesting in its own people. It's a false economy, really, is what you're saying. But it's, it's interesting because there's talk now about whether they should actually, to try and reduce this migration, they should say one of the requirements if you're coming into the country, even if you are in an occupation that's needed, that you need to have a job secured that is paying at least 35000 a year, which is a little below the average wage in Australia, which is 38000 but it's, you know, it's pretty close. The Royal College of Nursing says the average salary of a nurse in 2021 was 33000 So uh, as well as stopping the boats, they're going to stop the nurses by, <laughs> or they will, or the, all of a sudden, the, you know, the NHS will have to start paying whatever that base salary to get people into the country is going to be, which is going to inflate the cost uh, for, for hiring nurses. So I don't know. It seems like we're the, twisted logic is at work in a lot of this, isn't it? It is. And, and it's a, you know the the old argument in favour of neoliberalism was that you won't need the state because you'll be the economy will grow so much faster your your wages will be higher from the private sector uh, you won't need welfare yada 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 instead what we get at the end of it is the rate of economic growth actually halved largely around the world courtesy of neoliberal policies uh, and wages and conditions declined because the unions got got exterminated in that whole process. So workers no longer had to do any collective bargaining and therefore they lost out over wage rises versus uh, markup increases and so on. And uh, it, <laughs> it's a hellhole. And if, if, because you haven't provided the essential services while you still pretend to have a national health scheme, then you bring in cheap labour from overseas to cover it. So it is just a... You know, a series of catastrophes which began from the belief that everything should be privatised, which we got back from Maggie and Ronald back in the 1970s and 80s. So do you think if we had stronger labour representation and wages would be higher, there'd be more domestic uh, jobs and less need to take people from overseas? Do you think that's the way it would work? That, that's Yeah, absolutely. That, that's uh, certainly – I mean, there's much more to the migration issue, and we'll cover that obviously in the rest of the discussion. But f fundamentally, a lot of this – uh, low wage uh, or student, and often full faux student uh, immigration uh, was a product of having privatised the education system in various ways. Like I've, you know, I've I knew students in so-called students in uh, accounting programs at uh, in Sydney. Uh, who were being uh, educated by private providers who have became where private providers existed because of the privatization of, of public education uh, over time. And they were learning accounting and bookkeeping and stuff like this. And there was no way they were working in those industries. There's no way they'd get a job in those industries. We're just to make the migration from where they had their own personal reasons for wanting to be uh, in Australia, a higher, you know, higher wage on average uh, than than they would have got in their home countries, talking of migrations from, the, from some of the poorer countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, so that was the motivation. But then they put up with this whole experience so that they could get their visa. And so it's a visa farm system. And uh, and I imagine a similar thing applies in the UK mm. as well. It's interesting how you know people voted for Brexit. Well, not all of them, but you know I think a significant number 
were people who were seeing lower wages, uh, their jobs basically being undercut by foreign workers. And so they wanted to see less foreign workers, hoping that that would see their wages go up. It doesn't seem to have worked that way, does it? In fact, now we're taking more people than, than ever before because we need them uh, for jobs that are not being filled uh, domestically. I mean, maybe we've got less builders now, so builders locally can charge more, but we're taking more doctors and nurses. But, I mean, the fact that we are taking more from overseas, we're just not taking them from Europe now. We're taking them from further afield. So, you know, nothing nothing gained. Something ventured, nothing gained as far as uh, Brexit's concerned. Yeah, I mean... There's not a detection in Brexit overall, but uh, it's it's this the, the interesting thing about opposition to migration. This is one of the one of the problems we have: the level of racial tension that rises because of it. Uh, there's a wonderful study I remember reading from a book called uh, the, "The Political Economy of Australian Capitalism" way back in the 30s, with uh, my old uh, old mentor Ted Wilwright being the editor, and the academic from Macquarie University, Marie de Leprevache, I've never forgotten the name, did a wonderful study of, of, of political opposition to new waves of migration. And what she found was most of the opposition to the current wave of migration came from people who arrived in the previous wave of migration, and the reason being basically that that meant that the these people had got themselves into the country whatever whatever means or reason uh, become part of the society put up with low wages in, a, in their own area and now they saw the next wave of migrants as, as reducing the security they managed to get by migrating there in the first place so it, it is one of these you have to have to manage very carefully uh, if you do wish to bring migration in. And for example, I think the best one of the best things ever done by the Australian Conservative Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser was to let all uh, uh, people who wish to be refugees from Cambodia and Vietnam come to Australia, and that was both humanitarian on a grand scale, given the catastrophic damage Australia helped cause in those wars by supporting America uh, in the Vietnam War. But uh, it also transformed the nature of Australian society, I think, in a, a way that you'd, you'd have to be a racist to be opposed to it because the improvement in the culture and the food was off the scale. So, um, you know, it, it, you, you just can't do it holders bolus, otherwise you give yourself problems both in assimilation of people and their acceptance into the community, but you also have to spend an enormous, you should be spending an enormous amount on what's called capital broadening. You provide more schools, more roads, et cetera, et cetera, rather than better schools, better roads. And there's a point where I think you think are well past the point of, in this particular case, I hate to use the phrase, but I'll use it, diminishing returns uh, when you the wave of migration is so great that you could, you no longer devote money to improving the quality of your infrastructure. You devote it to expanding what you've currently got at the same standard. Yeah. Well, so that that broadening argument, I mean, I mean, that, that, there is the argument that, you know, a lot of the, the migrants that are coming in are complementary skills. You know, they're doing jobs that wouldn't be done or, uh, or certainly wouldn't be done for the price and then arguably that that frees up i love that that term that economists like to use it free, it frees up the ability for the people who have been made uh, redundant by those you know lower paid workers coming in to do something else which uh, which which pays better well you but then you know you could look at the whether you believe the unemployment statistics or not even with this high level of migration uh, you know there's a, the people claiming unemployment benefit in the uk the unemployment rate is actually really very low even though we know that there's a whole swag of people who are just choosing not to work for, for, for whatever reason, perhaps because they can. 
Medically, because they can't. Mm. Or medically, because they can't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, mm. so I mean, it's, I, but that complementarity, the fact that they're coming in and doing jobs that other people wouldn't do, I mean, that would be an argument for it, wouldn't it? But at the same time, um, you, you, this weakens the, the bargaining power of workers. I mean, the people who are coming in by and large are not, uh, are not billionaires. Okay? So what you, what you have is an is a increase in the size of the labor force, which is a useful tactic for weakening the capacity of workers who bargain for wages across the entire spectrum of, of the uh, of, of working class jobs and middle class jobs, so that's why the opposition, and this is this is where you get, you know, in effect, what, what looks like a swing to the right by the working class occurs because the working class are the ones who are being threatened by this uh, increase in mig- migration numbers, and right wing parties are very good at taking advantage of that and turning it to shift their country. In many ways, it actually ways that undermine the, the, the same benefits those workers are hoping hoping to get by cutting down the immigration. So it's a, it's an awful mess in the way that it affects uh, mm. politics. But in his defence, Rishi Sunak, and I, by the way, I don't think I've ever used those words in conjunction. In his defence, Rishi Sunak uh, has been increasing the minimum wage, which seems like an easy fix for that problem. It would be, yeah. It depends on how how minimum the minimum wage is. I mean, the minimum wage in America is appalling. Uh, so you know, you, I can say of the order of eight dollars when the people are campaigning for $15 an hour. and I, I look at the—I mean, I look at the costs of living in London. I, you know, I spent four years of my life there, and it—it's just struggle to survive on twice the minimum wage in London, maybe even three times. So the—the the fact that these workers are then required to work in—you uh, know—often the jobs they're going to get are going to be in that part of the world, but they therefore can't afford to have anything like decent accommodation. So you yeah, find there should them- be a different one for London, shouldn't there? Well, there used to be a oh, London yeah. allowance they used to get paid. So eleven forty-four is the answer to the question. That's how much they're increasing it from 10.42 to 11.44 there for workers over the age of 23. So, mm. uh, you know, it's it's better than the US, but probably, you know, probably probably not enough. Maybe it needs to be a, a great deal more. And of course, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Mm. So the one thing, the one, the one number that gets hidden, of course, in all of this is uh, GDP. So, um, uh, you know, it's a very useful way of boosting GDP, isn't it? So exactly. the UK, IMS forecast for 2023 for G7 countries, it's got... Um, 2.1% for the US, uh, half a percent for the UK. It was, actually, it was worse than that for the UK. It was sort of negative, just as they've been forecasting uh, negative growth for Germany, which is almost certainly in a, in a recession now. But half a percent, OECD forecasts are 0.3%, so somewhere around that. Uh, but, you know, we've just had three quarters of a million people uh, coming into the country. So per capita, obviously, we are in a recession. And that's happened. I mean, you get positive GDP numbers and negative GDP per capita. So that's, I mean, um, that, but for, an, yeah. for, for a government that's not seeing any productivity growth, throwing more people at the problem obviously is, is an easy way to, you know, try and keep the economy growing. And that's a similar thing being done in Australia right now as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm actually more interested in the long-term issues, though, on this because, you know, population uh, growth and what it does in general to the entire planet uh, is another issue, which is something that's very fraught to talk about in terms of in global warming circles, but I think it needs to be discussed. And uh, we've, we've, we've been doing like limitless growth in the population. We're currently at 8 billion uh, people on the, on the planet. If you go back to 1972, when the limits of growth were written, I think it's roughly 3 billion people. So we've drastically increased the load we're putting per capita, however that's distributed, on the planet. And of course, over that, over that 50-year period, we've effectively doubled the energy consumption per person. So we're using you know, six to eight times as much of the planet's 
reproducible capacity as we were back then, and I think that's one of the major issues we yeah. have to address. So I wonder, and we'll, we'll address this when we come back after the break, but uh, you know, a question to leave you with. Uh, I wonder whether uh, the fact that we are making it easier for people to migrate from developing nations to developed nations you know, in search of, uh, of, of more money, whether we're actually adding to that population growth is that you know would would things level off a bit if we had less of this uh, migration happening around the world question for you when we come back it is the debunking economics podcast with steve keen i'm phil dobby back in just a second many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Second. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So we are asking the question this week, are there too many people on the planet? And Steve, I mean, the idea that if you are in a poor country and you are struggling to get by, that, uh, you know, the, the father in the family can shoot off overseas or the mother, somebody who can find a job in the UK or some other developed nation and send a bit of money back home. Uh, then, you know, that's uh, that's a way out of, you You know, the situation you find yourself in. You might have a bigger family. It might add to population growth. Uh, is, is, is this migration that we're seeing around the world, is that just adding to the global population, do you think? I actually want to take a slightly different tack here because everybody's talking about migrating from poor countries to rich countries. Uh, but if you remember, have you ever seen the movie The Day After Tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was a breakdown of the AMOC. Uh, the top half of America becomes uninhabitable. And who were the migrants and where did they go? The migrants were American. They went to Mexico. That's the one. That was, uh, that was now, the movie where we saw a uh, an ocean liner going down the streets of New York, I seem to remember. <laughs> that's right, because what you had was, I mean, it was, it, was, it was actually based on quite good science until they did the, the Hollywood special effects stage. So yeah. the yeah. idea of the, the decline in the AMOC, Suddenly, meaning that heat distribution systems breaks down. What and that was all. That's all quite correct. We are potentially facing that. And then what they did was, of course, it's Hollywood, and so instantly there were two gigantic, and I mean, you know, absolutely gigantic uh, uh, hurricanes that uh, transferred enormous amounts of cold air from the stratosphere down to the uh, down to ground level and, and froze New York. Mm. It was after the after the boat sailed up the street. So 
But, but we are going to face something of that nature quite possibly. And all the talk about you know, what climate change is going to do and all these migrants are going to come from the poor countries to the rich, it could easily be the other way around. Yeah. And and, and therefore... I th- and, and We're not seeing that happening yet, be. of course, are we? I, no, no, not yet, but we could. Mm. You so Americans moving to Mexico. Well, I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, they're in Florida. It's only a, only a well, short... I think Britain, Britain, Britain's moving to Uganda is equally possible because <laughs> if we do have a breakdown in food distribution systems, if you talk to climate scientists, the each-way bet they're making about what's going to be the first absolutely undeniable global catastrophe would be either a global food famine by wiping out essential, particularly grain crops, or a wet bulb catastrophe. Now, you're not likely to see the wet bulb catastrophe in the UK, even though you got 40-degree temperatures last uh, uh, last summer. But how much of you that? How, like how much of that climate mm-hmm. change and that you know that that need for food is being driven by just the sheer size of the of the that, world's population? That, and, that, and then the that, UK, that, the UK's issue is going to be the size of you know meeting the domestic need for food with an increasing population of which many are coming from overseas. So, looking at the the IMF in twenty twenty, they in their World Economic Outlook, they had a chapter on the macroeconomic effects of global migration. They say immigration in advanced economies makes up twelve percent of the population, which is up from 7% in 1990. In other economies, uh, migrants are only about 2% of the population. So, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, okay, as you're saying, the drift might turn the other direction with climate change. But right now, these are real numbers about what's happening now. So 12% of the population Mm -hmm. in advanced economies are people coming from from elsewhere. Uh, And um, people tend to think, by the way, that migration is twice that level. There's this this psychological Mm -hmm. belief that migration is actually twice as bad as it really is. Um, but they're saying, um, you know, the, the 1% increase in the inflow of migration will result in a 1% increase in economic output by the fifth year. And the reasoning is about two-thirds of this increase is attributed to an increase in labour productivity. The remaining one-third of employment growth, uh, which is, they say, in borderline insignificant. An increase in total factor productivity matches the rise in labour productivity. As the capital stock responds immediately to the higher employment and productivity, the capital labour ratio rises. When breaking down total employment growth into its components, the analysis does not detect any effect on the aggregate growth of native employment. So productivity increases, presumably because, you know, a chunk of that would be because people are getting paid less and working harder. Uh, and the employment remains the same for natives because they reckon they're the ones who are taking those complementary tasks in occupations which are going to pay them better. So as far as they're concerned, for the receiving nation, it's all looking good. It's helping GDP growth. It's not impacting employment in any way. And it's driving greater investment. That's what they reckon. It doesn't feel like that's what's happening, though, does it? It reminds me. Do you remember old Piggy Muldoon from New Zealand? Yeah. Um, okay, when he was asked about what he thought about the uh, level of migration of young New Zealanders to Australia, he answered, it improves the average IQ of both countries. <laughs> I think it's one of, one of the best put-downs ever in politics. Um but you know, it, 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 this will be seen as a positive by conventional economists because they have a, a ridiculous attitude to what they call labour productivity, which when you look at it properly, is actually an increase in the energy processing capacity of the machines we're building. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not building better machines, you're not getting better productivity at all. You're just, again, you're tilting the, the uh, playing field in favour of capitalists against workers. 
But so also, I'm not too convinced by that analysis. So no, I, th- I thought you wouldn't be. But what about the countries where those migrants are leaving from as well? So if you do say, well, okay, it's good for the for the productivity and for the growth in uh, in in the economy of those receiving nations. What about the countries that they're leaving? Who's filling their nursing jobs? How are their economies well, going not. to grow? Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, you, how, how yeah, does anyone yeah. with any ambition help the the the, the economy get any better? And that's why a lot of uh, developing countries don't like the out migration that's occurring, and, and you know, it would means they train staff. It being doctors and nurses get trained in, uh, you know, let, let's say Bhutan would be a good choice for a, a very low wage country, or India, and bang, they do they get on a, you know, they then migrate to the UK where they get, even though the uh, you know the, the the pay is low, it's still better than they'd get back 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 in parts of India. So it it's undermining the development capability of the third world as well. And if you allowed for the development of the third world, you'd see, you know, evidence of, of history shows as countries become more developed, population growth slows. So we would be doing good for the planet by doing that. Yeah. Although I mean, their energy cons- uh, although their energy consumption would also go up, of course. So that's not such a well, that's that that well, that that's happened dramatically in China. I mean, I I, I keep on thinking, having been to China in eighty one, eighty two, and uh, going walking through Shanghai and seeing the other side of the Bund River being basically rice paddies, and then going back and seeing it in you know, the two thousand and tens, you know, the eight two thousand and eighteen. I think was the last time I went there. Uh, just you know, you've got these incredible skyscrapers. Anybody who was twenty years old or more in nineteen eighty two, though they're about sixty now, has seen the most dramatic improvement there in, in the in the quality of life they're experiencing, certainly in terms of energy consumption. And uh, and that's the larger reason why they'll be politically predisposed towards the Communist Party as well, is because they've seen such dramatic improvement in their own lifetimes. Mm. Now, of course, that meant that uh, you don't get much out-migration out of China, except for those who are getting away from the political issues in China. So that massive development means you lose that outflow of, of, uh, of you know well-trained but low-wage low workers from the third world to the first so, I mean, we should be encouraging that then, perhaps. Although then, you know, what, but why would the West do that? Because they are benefiting from all these uh, these low-paid workers. But then we get these low-paid workers or lower-paid workers coming into the country and then it upsets the apple cart a little bit because uh, normally we haven't got the services to support them. So Migration Watch, which is a UK lobby group, the fact it's called Migration Watch obviously means that they don't like migration. I mean, there's not a group called Migration Watch because they want to see more. Uh, mm. They say there were nearly 700,000 new GP, GP registrations by migrants in the year 2019 to 2020. Uh, and I- I- immigration requires a new home to be built in England every five minutes to meet the skyrocketing demand. I mean, it takes more than five minutes to build a house. That's ridiculous. Uh, so, um, so that, I mean, that, that, that demand, that pressure on essential services um, is, is, is part of the problem, isn't it? But actually, that's not, oh, the yeah, problem, that's not the problem of the migrants. That's the problem of the government not providing the services to meet the population. I mean, they know how fast the population is growing, you would assume. You would assume. Yeah, you know, assume stands will make an ass out of you and me. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, well, we don't. I mean, in Britain, we don't actually, because we don't actually count how many people leave the country. You know, most most countries. You don't plan you, anything in Britain. Yeah. I mean, the only thing you plan is the next press release. Yeah. Uh, it, this is just ridiculous. So, the, uh, you know, Britain's bringing its problems well and truly upon itself. 
but like again, this is my point: the the, the, the anti-migrant attitude, which uh, let's not praise Richie Sunak now, he's feeding into it, uh, even yeah. though he's causing the intake, he's feeding into that uh, as a as an electoral campaign. Um, this could and you know sending people to you sending asylum seekers. Where was it? To, which country did they chosen to try to dump them into? Rwanda. Yeah, he's not. He's no, to the trying to send them to Rwanda. He's not having a great deal of success with that, though. I mean, there's lots of court challenges ag- against that. But I mean, yeah. the idea that uh, yeah, that's going to solve. And but that, supposedly a deterrent to stop people coming here, uh, which of course it won't make any effect, have any effect whatsoever. But uh, but my but my worry is and and just you know. When there's and this is going to be case of not if but when when there's a breakdown in global food, uh, Britain will be absolutely exposed because Britain imports at least thirty percent of the food for the population. So mm. you're suddenly going to find you 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 won't you're going to have people who want to leave England to go where there's food. Yeah, and in the, the level of racism that's been part of this you know, campaign. Boosting migration while using migrants and asylum seekers as, as political cannon fodder uh, will backfire massively when people want to migrate from, say, so actually want to not being kicked out as asylum seekers to Rwanda, they're going back as food seekers to Rwanda. Yeah, uh, you know, so they're, they're going to get a very warm reception. Aside from all of that, about the issue about food security becoming more of an issue, I mean, right now, just the fact that so much has to be imported to meet the demands of the population as it is, adding seven hundred fifty thousand in a year just makes that issue worse even before you start to look at the impact of climate change. So, but what if you stop migration? If you got down to... So David Cameron famously said that he wanted to get migration, net migration down to tens of thousands, which, you know, is where we are. It's just the 75 tens of thousands. Uh, the, I mean, the natural population growth, as you mentioned, so births minus deaths, is about 70,000 for England and Wales. Don't know what it, they, mm. they, Scotland's on. I, they also make babies in Scotland. I understand. I don't know what the numbers are there, but possibly more because the men wear ca- kilts, so they're ready for it whenever they need to. But you know, a seven, goes Scottish subscribers. <laughs> Seventy thousand a year, zero point one percent growth rate. How does an economy grow with a population growth rate like that? Unless you have a massive spike in productivity. Which we're not it getting, has to of be course. Checked. Well, for, for a start, what, I mean, we've got to come back to whether it's a good idea to grow or not. But what you do is you develop your technology, yeah. Uh, because you know, what we call labour productivity, is, as I said before, is actually the increase in the energy processing capacity of the machinery. Uh, that's what it gives you the productivity. It's not it's not labour productivity at all. Uh, it, it, you know, people working harder. It's working with smarter machines. So that's uh, that's where you put your time. You do you go Swiss rather than going English. Right. But there's two types of jobs, aren't there? There's jobs which are geared towards uh, productivity, looking after those machines. Who gave that classic quote? There's two. The, the, the machine only needs uh, you know. Once you've got a machine that's running things for people, you only really need one man to do the job. Uh, or what is it? One man and a, a dog, isn't it? That the the, um, the 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 dog, the man is there to man the machine, and the dog is there to make sure the man doesn't touch anything. Uh, that's because <laughs> the machine just does everything for you. But so you've got productive jobs there, which are helping the economy grow. But increasingly, and I'm not quite sure how this relates to productivity. You got the jobs there, which are basically maintaining welfare. So you've got uh, José Luis Escriva, who's Spain's minister responsible for for migration. He reckons that uh, the EU needs 50 million people in the next 25 years to stabilise its population, given the demographic trends that they're having. Uh, And there's an absolute need for this simply to maintain the welfare state. So... 
you know, and that's there's nothing productive about increasing the welfare state, increasing healthcare, because that's not, you know, you're not making, you're not curing people's illnesses faster. It's hard to show that in the, you know, in the in those GDP numbers. So how do you get greater productivity when you've got an increasing number of people who are simply there to maintain the welfare state and make sure people stay healthy? Well, I mean, there are you know, elements of the welfare state which involve high levels of technology too. I mean, hmm. uh, you go for an MRI. Oh, you go for an MRI. That's uh, a major piece of technology investment. And it, if you catch illnesses well before they develop, uh, then you need less uh, less nurses uh, in palliative care and so on. So there's there's ways in which you know, services are not entirely a zero sum game in terms of in terms of productivity gains. Uh, but again, uh, this this none of this thinking is is what's driving current politics. And uh, to, to me, I mean, we've, you're seeing it. Other elements of the of the social system get in the way as well. And so I see so many you know, when when new migrant uh, populations are developing, their own schools as established, same for religious groups and so on. Uh, whereas in, in the 50s and 60s, you used to have pretty much a public schools system and that was it, public meaning public in the, in the American sense, not the British sense of you know, highly wealthy private schools. Um, and therefore, you had social mixing between groups and that broke down the level of racism. Mm. And uh, that's not happening now again. So, you know, migration, which in terms of experiencing different cultures and enriching some parts of the world by bringing in, say, for example, tasty food, um, uh, that... This this is being ruined by the fact we're allowing social division, also part of the whole privatisation push. Well, so, so di uh, division it also an comes unholy mess. Yeah, but div social division comes when people are poor, doesn't it? When people are struggling to make uh, the cost of living uh, sort of work out, so they so they have to blame it on somebody. So that's where you start to get social division. I mean, there's lots of studies showing that is exactly what we're going through right now. Uh, and if we didn't mm -hmm. have that, maybe people would get along better, and uh, the attitude towards migration would be better. But do we, you know, but do we want more migration? Seven hundred and fifty thousand is obviously a lot. Um, we po possibly don't want to get down to the point where it's just natural population growth because that is too slight. But I mean, do we have a handle on what would be a good number? And 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 or sh you know, should we keep it at a minimum and just be focusing on helping? those nations where these people are coming from so that they can make a decent living and help those economies grow. That seems like an eminently more sensible way forward, doesn't it? I'm afraid this is where my focus on global warming comes in, and I think we've got probably about four times as many humans as we should have right. on the planet. And uh, So what are you proposing we do, we... Steve? How do we do? We just uh... Uh, We're going to do it the hard way, as humans mm. always do. Mm. And if we're lucky, it just stops at $2 billion in that process. But the large part of the reason we can support so many people is the Haber-Bosch process, Haber-Bosch, I think it's called, uh, by which we take uh, produce nitrogenous fertilizer using fossil fuels. Now, if that technology hadn't been developed, there's seen plenty of good estimates by scientists that the population carrying capacity in terms of our food production would have peaked at 2 billion people. And instead, we've gone to 8 billion people. But of course, that's dependent upon continuing to produce artificial fertilizers to produce that amount of food. Now, if because of global warming, carbon dioxide, fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and then also the potential catastrophes from, from climate change, uh, that process may be you know, forcibly terminated in one way or the other. And then we go back to the natural carrying capacity of the planet for humans rather than one we've artificially generated out of fossil fuels, which is 8 billion. 
Right. But so what's the tipping point in all of that? When does when does suddenly a large slice of the population suddenly disappear? And can't we gear ourselves towards it? Like, for example, by, I don't know, population control measures or as I you know, said earlier, if we if we help the emerging nations to develop faster. Uh, then their population growth is going to slow, isn't it? And if we at the same time are saying, well, let's not take new migrants in, um, let's somehow manage to operate the welfare state domestically um, by whatever means in terms of how we tip the balance of the economy and maybe we need to reinforce the strength of unions to achieve that then everyone wins ultimately in that, don't they? Well, yeah, it's a winning winning hand if we're at the right table. I think we're at the wrong table. So, um, I mean, my my expectation is when global warming starts to really bite, you're going to get food-producing surplus nations hanging on to what they have rather than exporting it and telling importing nations to go jump. And then you're going to get uh, attempts to migrate to the to the and, and quite, you know, quite potentially catastrophic approaches to migration, waves of people in the the current Mexican-American border sense, not not um, the sort of applying for a, a visa uh, situation we're talking about here. Um, you know, that'll be catastrophic. And the only sensible response, unfortunately, will be to do what right-wingers are arguing for now and close the borders uh, because you're going to have a society surviving what we're going through. They have to fundamentally be able to provide food for their own people. And it'll be the countries that have that food-producing capacity you have the capability to do it. One of them is, is happens to be uh, uh, the Netherlands, which is partly the reason why I bought a house here. Um, the UK is not one, and that's why I think. But the Netherlands is only self-sufficient the, in food because they're spending an enormous amount on energy, heating greenhouses to to grow. That's a food. large part of it. Yeah, they've got that. They're going to have an issue part when it, the problem. if they. They don't produce their own oil. They've got, you know, north, I don't know how much they've got of the North Sea oil uh, crop. But, you know, we're likely to increase our use of carbon, <laughs> of carbon dioxide generating uh, fuels uh, when these catastrophes start happening rather than reducing them. But in that transition, the countries that have got a potential to hang together are those that have produced a food surplus. And uh, it is the Netherlands. It certainly mm. isn't the UK. All right. Look, if you want a happier life, just always turn off before the last five minutes of these podcasts. That's probably... I, mean, I always get my little kicking, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> you'll yeah. be blissfully ignorant, but uh, but somewhat happier. Look, uh, just as an aside, uh, I, I was uh, used chat GPT a few times this week just to see how much it can get things wrong, uh, which yeah. is worrying. I mean, just double check anything that you get chat GPT to do for you. Uh, but uh, I, I thought, I don't know why, it, it said, would you like us to write a limerick about you? And I thought, no, I'd like you to write a limerick about Steve Keen. So this oh, is Jesus. a chat... Okay. G- yeah. There once was an economist called Keane whose critiques of neoclassics were much seen. He's post-Keynesian, you see, and his work's quite a spree, debunking economics, his routine. It's It's not not bad, bad, actually. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a note. Poets, there's another job gone. Well, I'll tell you what. I've I've, I've thought of a cartoon which I've suggested to my good mate, Miguel Guerra, to actually create, but if Miguel doesn't have the time, I might see if we can get uh, the visual version of ChatGDP to produce the cartoon I'd like to have along, have <laughs> have uh, circulating. So, right. At least there's some applications for AI. Exactly. Yeah. Congr- uh, in this case, completely useless, but there we are. Uh, mm. But good to talk. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, mate. Bye. And we hope we get Janus Varoufakis on the uh, podcast sometime soon as well. He said yes, just got to find out the time in his busy schedule. Uh, So hopefully, you know, next couple of weeks we'll have that. Uh, That's it for this week, though. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve again next week. Thanks for listening. The Debunking Economics Podcast.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.